0: The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: Yeah, you bet. We're here, and uh, hopefully you are as well for the duration. John Skulls along with my good pal Stan Fanselberg, Sam to Tamarkin, LLP. That's where Stan resides during his work days, helping you uh you know, it, Go through your employment law matters, navigate that uh, that craziness, but always reachable, Stan is, and he's got a, a good team behind him anyway, one 821 5900 is how you do that on the outside of the show, help at employmentlawyer.ca, but uh, yeah, I'm going to get through a ton of email today, help at employmentlawyer.ca is what we're going to focus on, but first Stan, we always start off with the, uh, the case of the day, pal. What's going on with you? Good morning, John. Good morning, uh, listeners. Yeah, for the case of the day, I wanted to talk about something that uh, I've seen a
2: couple of cases come out recently from the courts, and I think is a really interesting issue, and that's the issue of recording conversations in the workplace and whether or not that's a justifiable reason to terminate someone. So many listeners may not actually know this, but in Ontario and in Canada, we are what is called a one-party consent jurisdiction. So what that means from a criminal perspective code perspective specifically is that as long as the person recording the conversation consents to the recording, that's all that's necessary to allow that person to actually make a recording of the conversation. And that's perfectly legal. But the question is, is it something more than legal? Is it is it allowed in the employment context to record conversations with your manager, let's say? And based on the case law, the answer is kind of, it depends. It depends on the context. So to give you an example, John, there was a a case that recently came out in which during the actual uh, litigation itself, the employee advised the company that he had actually recorded hundreds of conversations over the span of four years with colleagues, with managers, with basically anyone. Uh, Now, the employee's rationale for this was that he was trying to learn English. He was an immigrant at the time, and he was also trying to create a record of proof as to how he was being discriminated against. Uh, The court in that instance, though, said that that was absolutely a breach of privacy of these individuals and a breach of the trust in the employment relationship itself and amounted to just cause. Even though it wasn't at the time the employee was actually terminated, the employer didn't even know about these recordings. It only came out after, during the lawsuit, and at that point, the employer changed their position to essentially say that that new information constituted grounds to terminate that employee for cause, and the court in that specific case agreed. Hmm. Now, in another recent case, the very similar thing happened, A employee had recorded their conversations with their supervisor in this instance. And this also came out during the litigation itself. And at that point, the employer again changed their position to say, well, you know, that's cause. You've destroyed the relationship that we had between the employer and the employee. And in this particular instance, the court actually disagreed with the employer. And, and there were a couple of reasons why specifically, you know, In that, in this case, the person was actually being constructively dismissed. They were having their income reduced, and the employee had reasonable concerns that what was being said in conversations to him or to other colleagues uh, was essentially deceiving him, that they were talking very poorly of him, talking about his performance in ways that was not true, and he wanted to have a recording of the conversation or a just to make sure that the record was actually accurate, because, as, as I can tell you many times, uh, what's said in an oral conversation, often people don't seem to agree as to what exactly was said and seem to have different recollections. And so here, in this case, the judge ultimately said that Mr. Rooney, the, the plaintiff, had reasonably uh, reasonable suspicions that he was being constructively dismissed. And he had been suspended without pay at that point and had concerns that he was being portrayed as a problem to other people and being set up in a, se- in a sense. And that, he, as a last resort, he, re- he recorded the conversations with his supervisor after all of this kind of already happened and after it was obvious that the employment relationship had broken down.
3: Right.
2: So in those circumstances, to create the record he needed for his lawsuit, that was deemed to be okay Simply because the employer had already engaged in the type of conduct that was that essentially the employee was alleging they were engaged in, and he wanted proof of that. So, can you record someone in a workplace? Again, it ultimately depends on the context. And what I would tell anyone is, if they're doing it, just make sure that you you know you're not doing it just to do it. Like the in the previous case, who recorded hundreds of conversations. You know, you're doing it in specific instances when you know the conversation that you're about to have is going to potentially lead to litigation and potentially lead to things that, like a constructive dismissal.
1: Again, always reaching out to stand with any questions uh, when we're not doing the show. Don't hesitate. Get some answers. Right one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Marcus, thanks for hanging on for a moment. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Good. What's uh? What's on your mind?
3: So, uh, I'm going to try and make the long story as short as I can. Um, so, I was working in a restaurant um, in a managerial role, a senior managerial role, and um, I was instructing a, um, an employee on um, where to find something, because she was new, so I was onboarding the employee, so I was bringing her around the, the restaurant, showing her the different um, spots to do her job. When another employee uh, saw the interaction uh, and deemed it as inappropriate, uh, then went to the uh, individual who I was instructing. She said she didn't feel that it was inappropriate or anything that I was doing was inappropriate. That secondary employee then went to my boss and reported it to my boss. And then my boss called me in for a meeting and wanted me to sign a document saying that I wasn't appropriate with the staff. Um, I refused to sign the document and, uh, disputed the fact that that's not what I did. There was an area for me to write my <clears throat> version of the event. I wrote down my version of the event and gave it back to my employer. He then told me, I cannot submit this because you didn't agree with what I wrote. And so we can't move forward. So that really rubbed me the wrong way, and I was quite upset about it. Um, I, I uh, was kind of very um, visually not myself after that meeting, mm-hmm. uh, just, just because the accusation, especially in these times and in general, is just egregious. And I don't think it should be something that's passed around lightly uh so the individual who it was about me and her she reached out to me and she said is this about so and so and so and so and i said yes and she said well i don't agree with it i never uh when i was asked about it i adamantly refused uh i don't know why this other employee is taking it upon herself to kind of throw you under the bus so um as as what as as things happen you know in a restaurant setting or any employee setting word gets around and about three days later after the initial meeting with my boss my boss uh uh came in and said well because you are still talking about this and unhappy about this um this conversation was supposed to be one that was not spoken about uh and because you broke uh that confidentiality uh he said we are going to terminate you so it's ultimately terminated for something i didn't do
1: Wow. Stan, what do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, that sounds awful. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I think you have to start with the understanding that ultimately, like if your boss is terminating you, even for this particular reason, they, in Ontario you ultimately have an unfettered right to terminate someone as long as you provide them with a fair severance. So yeah. you can't look at it from a fairness perspective, because I agree with you, it obviously this sounds like an unfair situation. But they, but they do have the power to do that. Now, if he's terminating you with with cause, essentially saying, "Well, what you did, we don't owe you severance," I would very much dispute that. I mean, you know, employers have extremely unreasonable expectations when it comes to confidentiality, in my view. Uh, as you say, it's a small workplace. It involves three people out of, you know, I imagine a handful. Uh, yeah. It's ex- extremely unreasonable for your boss to expect that that would not come out when there's three people involved
1: already. Yeah. Uh, did they pay you severance, Marcus? Did you get anything?
3: Um, I uh, applied for EI, and uh, they w- refused to put in the paperwork for four months for EI. Which is uh and uh, i literally was calling them EI was calling them repeatedly they were not answering my phone calls my emails so uh, i i got ei finally but yeah it, it, i the severance no
2: so your company didn't pay anything so that's where i would say you have a claim against them because they absolutely do owe you severance you know just because they think something happened doesn't make it a fact uh the, because they say you breach confidentiality doesn't mean a court's going to agree, and so in
3: well, this, and, and also I, I just want to uh, stipulate also the fact that I uh, nowhere on the document was it stated that this was uh, a, a conversation that couldn't be discussed. Right. Like, and uh, the and one of the other things that, that really pushed me was the fact that he said in the original document that because I disagreed with it. That, um, that I was wrong. I had to g- agree to move forward. So I think it was because I disagreed that that was kind of the uh, per- proverbial um, fly in the ointment. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, I hear all the time where people put a piece of
2: paper and said a warning of some kind said, sign this. It's, you know, Ultimately, that letter is just one person's opinion. Is just the company's opinion of what's happened. It doesn't mean it's a reflection of what actually happened. It doesn't actually mean that you did anything wrong. But because of the context of the relationship and the power that the employer has, you know, you can't really fight them if they say, hey, we're going to warn you for this. Uh, You could say it didn't happen. You can talk about how you dispute it. But it's the employment file. Like, it's their file. It's their subjective view of it if they have a subjective view that you disagree with, you know, it's hard, really hard to change that opinion or fight that at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't mean that they're right. And certainly if they didn't pay you a severance, that certainly doesn't sound right to me. Uh, I would definitely tell you call us, you know, during the week and speak to a lawyer and see what we can do for you because it doesn't sound like cause. And the fact that they frankly took four mm-hmm. months, to get the record of employment is something that we can actually say is punitive. And, and then I'll kind do of more money beyond the seventh as well.
1: Marcus, thanks for the call. We gotta run though we're late. So uh yeah, reach out to Stan afterwards and carry forth for sure. You've got you've got something to talk about. one 855 821 5900 Marcus, to do that. And we'll continue employment loss. You'll stand by.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment.
1: Yeah, we are back at it. Thank you so much for joining us. Stan Fanselberg is your guy, Sam Firu Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can reach out to Stan and his team anytime we're not doing this show for sure and have that conversation. 1 855 821 5900, help at employmentlawyer.ca. And the website for you to use anytime, free, anonymous, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Baked into that sucker is the severance calculator, which is handy. A guy like Marcus, we just had the phone, could definitely work out how much severance he was owed by using that severance calculator. It's free, takes about 30 seconds, and the uh, the number you get out the bottom is uh, absolutely correct. From there, you can carry on and talk to Stan and get some uh, some more details. Two million people, over two million, have used that severance calculator, so you can trust it for sure. Let's get into our first email. Uh, Tony, first one up, says, hey, Stan, having had received a recent severance, would I be able to apply for EI without any penalties or clawbacks? What do you think?
2: On the I. Eye- actually recently changed, uh, they actually changed back to what they were before the pandemic. So uh, during the pandemic, the government actually passed certain uh, regulations that said you can collect both EI and severance pay at the same time. Uh, And that was true up until about September of this year, when it reverted back to the old rules, which is that you can't collect both of them at the same time. So what generally happens, Tony, is if you get a severance, and let's say that severance is worth six months. You you need to apply for EI immediately because you need to make, you know, stake your claim and make sure you have enough insurable hours. But you won't actually be eligible to receive any EI payments until that six month period lapses. So you you can't collect both at the same time. You got to wait for your severance period to run out and then you can collect EI from there. Still uh, looking for work.
1: Tony, appreciate that. We'll get to uh, Tom. I think we got another uh, call coming through here. Yeah, we'll get to that. Tom, hey, how are you? Thanks for hanging on. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you. Um, Good. What's I'm, an going employer.
3: Yep. I'm an employer, and I've listened to your show for a number of years. Um, so I'm starting to think about retirement down the road. Is that five, six, seven years? Um, I would consider myself a mid-sized company. So if I go ahead and sell my company, from what I understand, then my existing employees could... Potentially not go with the new owner, and I would be responsible
2: for some kind of severance to them. Is that correct? It is, yeah, that is possible. So, depending on how you sell your company, so there's essentially two ways to sell. It. If you're selling the shares of the company, you don't have to worry about it because essentially nothing from the employees' perspective is changing. They're still working for the same legal entity that they were working for the day before. It's just think of it like Walmart. If the Waltons sold their shares, it doesn't affect the average Walmart employee. But most small companies, when they sell their business, what they're doing is they sell the assets of the business. And in that instance, you're at, the employee is actually changing from one legal corporation to another legal corporation, which does trigger a termination by nature. So the way to get around that. Is that when you when you sell the business and you have the purchase and sale agreement, you want to make sure that there's a provision in there that says that the employer is going to offer your employees a job. And if they if you have that provision, and let's say they do get offered a job, and it, it needs to be the same job. It can't be a worse job. But assuming it's the same job that they were work, uh, they had when they were working for you, even if they turn that job down, you can still argue that hey. Uh, You should have taken that job. You failed to mitigate your damages, and therefore I owe you nothing else. The other thing to consider is that because it's a termination, you have to satisfy their statutory requirements under the Employment Standards Act. So that, that would mean anyone over eight years, you have to give them at least eight weeks of notice that the sale is happening, and that will give them the eight weeks of notice from that point onwards to satisfy the statutory requirement. And as well, if you have a payroll over 2.5 million, and they've been, and any employee's been there for over five years, you may also have to pay them severance if they don't take the job. If they take the job, the statute actually says that their service is immediately recognized by the the purchaser. If they don't take the it's a termination, and you got to satisfy their statutory requirements.
1: Okay. What do you think about that? Uh,
2: uh, I don't, don't like it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's very unfair.
2: What portion of it is unfair? It's, it's uh, my company. I've given them employment. Um,
1: but well, uh, they
2: at do, they but, years of service as well. Don't you feel that you need to treat them fairly in the circumstances? Uh, that's what the paycheck's for at the end of each week or each month that's true, and that's why we have laws as well that deal with people who are being let go and it's very easy to comply with it. I just gave you the formula. Yes, yes.
3: But they're not but they're not being let go, they're being offered a position.
2: If they're be well as I say, if they're being offered a position, then you can easily get around with just giving them eight weeks notice.
3: Okay. Okay. Thank uh, you. Right, that's perfect. That
2: okay
1: yeah cool got it thanks tom appreciate that you need to uh, reach out any further uh you can do so because it's always a tricky thing when you're, you're going down the road That tom is one 821 5900 to reach out to stan any time to uh to carry on but rebecca's up next says hey guys my employer is forcing us to either get vaccinated or do testing twice a week or will be terminated uh, i do not want to do either as i feel this is a breach of my privacy is this legal
2: so it's, it's a very difficult question, something that you, John, you know, we've been dealing with quite a lot for the last oh, yeah. year. Um, and really, it, as the case law is kind of evolving and as we see more and more decisions coming out, uh, a lot of it kind of depends on context. In this particular context, when she's being offered the alternative of doing testing, most of the cases that I've seen have said that that is okay. Okay. Um, you know, they, uh, w- there's definitely a strong understanding that being required to take the vaccine, that that's a potential violation of someone's bodily integrity. They're actually putting something in their body. And so there's a higher level of, you know, scrutiny that kind of comes with that. Mm-hmm. But here, if they've already given you the alternative to do the testing, I mean, that is the compromise in essence, that you don't want to get the ma- uh, the vaccine. And Ultimately, that's a personal choice. Every employer and government seems to agree on that at this point. The government never forced us to do it, never mandated that we as individual citizens do it. So if you agree that it's a personal choice and you don't want to do that, well, testing is that alternative. Testing is a very non-invasive procedure that essentially kind of balances both interests, your interest in your privacy and your medical autonomy, and the employer's interest in making sure they have a safe workplace for everyone, not just yourself, but other but your colleagues as well. So in Rebecca's instance, I would say she has a very difficult you know, case to meet simply because I think that testing itself is the compromise and the reasonable alternative to the mandate uh, of the vaccine itself.
1: Rebecca, I hope that answers your question. Again, you can always reach out by phone. If not, uh, 1-855-821-5900. Ram Sammy, coming up here, says, Stan, my contract says I am promised a bonus based on personal goals. I got one every year for the last seven years, but my boss says the company can't afford a bonus this year. I looked at my numbers, and they're the same as always. Can they just take my bonus away like that? It's doing the Clark Griswold. Well, Ram Sammy, I would uh, say
2: generally that they can't. You know, if, when it comes to bonuses, you have to look at a couple of things. First of all, what is the quantum? Is it what we would call an integral part of your compensation? Mm-hmm. You know, And, and that essentially comes down to the numbers. It's the difference between getting a $500 Christmas bonus every mm-hmm. year as a thank you and, you know, $20,000, $25,000 bonus based on sales metrics. Uh, and that's the other aspect. Is it something that's actually discretionary? or is it based on something quantifiable? If there's actual metrics that you have to meet to get the bonus, well, it's not discretionary at that point because it's actually based on something. And in those two instances, if it's integral and it's non-discretionary, then it's considered a form of your compensation that you're entitled to. If they therefore take that away from you and reduce your income by enough of a percentage, that can be a constructive dismissal and can allow you to say, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to walk away, and you owe me severance employer based on that change.
1: Hope that answers most of the question. We'll uh, keep moving on here. Ram, Sammy, down to uh, to Ilya. Ilya's next. Very short one it says, what do you do if you have problems with your manager at work?
2: <laughs> a short question, but definitely a complicated issue, John. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, there's really degrees of escalation that I, I tell clients to go through to see if they can handle it, you know, before kind of taking a legal route. You know, the initial, I think, way to handle it would be to either speak to your manager. And if that doesn't work, speak to HR. You know, HR is there. You know, the important thing to remember is that HR is actually not there to protect you. It's there to protect the company from any liability but sometimes your interests and the company interests align in that sense, and HR will help you out. Uh, if HR is not helping you, then you can escalate it again. You can either choose to go to the Ministry of Labor route, and essentially there through the Ministry of Labor you can file what's called a toxic w- workplace or harassment complaint, uh, and somebody from the ministry will actually come into your workplace and do an investigation. It, the other alternative, if things are really bad and you can't really take it anymore, well, that in and of itself constitutes a constructive dismissal. You know, the, there's two branches to a constructive dismissal. There's either the one that we often think about, which is a unilateral change in the contract, like a reduction in salary or something like that, or the taking away of a bonus, as we just talked about with Ram Sammy. But the other branch is what we call the toxic work environment, Branch of constructive dismissal and what this theory essentially says is that if your employer is creating an inhospitable workplace for you that's essentially toxic then nobody has to accept that nobody has to work in that type of environment and they can choose to essentially leave and claim that that toxic environment itself was a termination right. a constructive dismissal entitling them to severance
1: and that's the way uh, that's going to work, Eli. Again, that's a conversation you're going to want to carry on a little deeper with uh, with Stan for sure. But you can always reach out to you know the email address. Obviously, he just gave it to us, and he uh, just used it. One eight five five eight two one. Fifty nine hundred is how you uh, call through. We'll take a short break here. Lots more on the way. Keep sending your emails along. We got uh well, we got a stack. That's okay. Help at employment lawyer dossier. We'll continue with the employment law show. Hang on.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: Yeah, welcome back to it. Stan Fainzelberg is your guy representing Sam Fearwood to Market LLP. You can reach out to Stan anytime if your employment law matters or questions. When he's not doing the show, is uh, reachable help at employmentlawyer.ca and then 1 And talk to us back to our email list here. Uh, Alex is up next, says, hey, Stan, does one and a half times pay for working on a statutory holiday only apply to hourly wages or other forms of pay as well, such as salaried employees?
2: Overtime applies to everyone. It doesn't matter how you're getting paid ultimately. uh, As long as you don't meet one of the exceptions to overtime, which are things like a manager, an IT worker, uh, a pool cleaner for some reason, uh, then regardless of whether you're hourly your salary you're commissioned what have you you are entitled to overtime for statutory holidays
1: so if you're over if you're salaried how are you figuring out that uh how much you owed?
2: generally you just try to extrapolate your salary to an hourly basis so let's say you know you make whatever a year divided by 52 divided by 40 and that's your hourly rate essentially.
1: And so it's one and a half times an hourly rate for overtime outside of managerial and pool cleaner and other stuff. It's interesting. It's interesting. A lot of people probably don't know that. They, they even get overtime being a salaried employee. They just figure this is what I get a year, and how many hours I work is what I work. But uh, that's good to know. Appreciate that note. Alex, Catherine, you're up next. Says, hey, guys, I'm currently on LTD, long-term disability, and I've been with my employer 20-plus years. I'm 62, and if I remain on LTD until 65, would I still be entitled to a full severance after LTD cuts me off?
2: Uh, well, it would depend on kind of the situation. So when they're on LTD, it means obviously that you're disabled and not able to work. Mm-hmm. And so if at some point, you know, so if LTD is cutting you off, it depends on what, what's the reason they're cutting you off. Do they Are they saying that you're able to go back to work, in which case your employer obviously has to try to take you back and accommodate you? Mm-hmm. Um if it's for some other reason, you know, for example, at the two year mark, the definition of disability actually changes under most policies from uh, essentially being unable to do your job to being unable to do any job. And so, let, you know, if you're an IT person and you can do your job and all of a sudden after two years, LTD might say, hey, well, you can flip burgers so you, you get cut off. That doesn't mean that you're ready to go back to work. Your doctors probably are still saying that you're not able to work in your position. At that point, what can happen is it can be a frustration of contract situation, essentially a situation where through neither party's fault, the employment relationship can't continue, in this case, due to a medical disability. In that particular context, you would be entitled to a a severance. It would just be limited to your minimum entitlements under the statutes.
1: Plus, I guess in Catherine's situation, she's saying she's 62, but uh, if she remains until 65, a part of that, she'd have to refer to her policy, but most policies would cease to exist at the age of 65. I mean, if she was 40, then she'd have an argument for, for many more years, but she's 62. She's probably looking at a top out of three years anyway. And the cutoff is more really the end of the policy at that point, I think, Stan, so she'd probably have to look at her uh, her policy and see when the uh, the cutoff is, because I know 65 is a pretty, uh, pretty common thing. What do we got next? Uh, Kelsey. Kelsey's working. Kelsey says, uh, I've been worked through two separate employment agencies for the same company for over 20 years. They laid me off during the pandemic. And then in January, I guess last January, the employment agency terminated me. Is there anything I can do? What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, firstly, there's
2: no question that the employment agency owes her severance. Uh, I don't think the employment agency is likely even going to deny that. When you're employed by an employment agency, they are, by definition, your employer, even if you are working at some other location. The interesting question, I think, here, John, is whether the place that she worked at for 20 years, whether they can be considered her employer and whether right. they can be sued as well. And again, often this turns on facts and context, but I have a matter that's not, you know, it's quite similar to hers, and we're taking the position that absolutely that that. That company where that person was sent to for twenty years is the employer, uh, based on you know the usual factors we think of when we think of an employment relationship. They were telling the person where to be, when to be there, what to do, uh, telling them what they would get paid, and you know an employment agency ultimately is about temporary employment. That's the purpose of an employment agency. It's not to have somebody you know, as a temporary worker for 20 years, because frankly, there's nothing temporary at that point after a 20 year relationship. So it's disingenuous, in my view, to actually say that that person is still a temporary worker and not employed by the company that's actually using their services and only by the employer. I, in my view, I would essentially say they're both the employer and take action against both of them for severance.
1: So there you go. Hope that answers. Uh, hope that answers your question, Kelsey. Again, reaching out to Stan afterwards. Simple, simple, and always invited to do so. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. You still got lots of time. Rajesh is next. Says, guys, my employer is selling the business and tells me the buyer is going to hire me. However, it's been almost two months and I haven't heard from the buyer. Can I still go after my former employer?
2: Yeah. You absolutely can. Uh, you have up to two years from the time you discover your claim, or in this case, the time that probably is your last day worked for your employer, to, uh, to bring a lawsuit against your former employer. Uh, and very clearly, if the buyer is not hiring you back, then there's really no no argument that your old employer, the seller in this instance, owes you severance. So give us a call during the week, and we can talk you through that and uh, and get you your
1: entitlements. We've still got uh, some more emails to go here. Let's get to one more before we uh, take a break. Quick stand. Danny says, guys, I refuse to get the vaccine for religious reasons, but my employer would not budge and terminated me without anything. No severance, nothing. Is this discrimination and a wrongful dismissal?
2: It can absolutely be discrimination potentially. I mean, obviously, religion is a protected ground that we recognize under the human rights code. And if you have a sincerely held belief, if you can prove the nexus between your belief and the action of not taking the vaccine, it can absolutely be discrimination. Uh, and in terms of a termination, so the case law is, is again evolving in this area all the time. But one thing that seems to be coming becoming more and more clear is that you really can't fire people for refusing to take the vaccine. And the rationale essentially is that if we all agree that this is a personal choice and that nobody's being forced to do it, which is you know, the general basis of what every employer I've dealt with has argued, that we didn't force them to do it. We just have a policy that essentially doesn't allow them to work. Well, if you're not forcing them to do it and agree it's a personal choice, you can't then make it a disciplinary action, essentially saying that because of the personal choice you made, it's willful misconduct in this case and we're going to fire you for cause. That, that is a very difficult position to take and one that courts and the arbitrators seemingly agree it, is not justifiable.
1: Guys, we'll take one more quick break and back to more of our uh, more of our emails. Thank you for stepping up and sending these. By the way, you can continue to do that uh, after the show, of course. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. We continue with the employment law show. Hang on.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: Alrighty, welcome back. Stan Fanselberg. is your guy. John Scholes here as well on this uh, hour-long show. We always encourage you to reach out afterwards, get some more information, have a chat with Stan and his team. There's uh, no obligation. It's uh, going to cost you nothing, right? 1-855-8215. 5900. You can also go to the website pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. There's so much to be learned there. It's free. It's anonymous even before you make that phone call and you will have access as well to the severance calculator at pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And the email address we're pulling from today and every show for that matter, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Next one right now is uh, Claire. Let's get to Claire's email. Stan says, my department is being outsourced to another company and this new company wants me to stay on as a contractor. Is that even legal?
2: Yeah, an interesting situation. And again, I think it all turns on facts. But really, if Claire is going to be doing the exact same job that she did as an employee, uh, and they're just calling her a contractor, I would say that that is likely disingenuous, uh, and that for at least employment reasons, that person is very much an employee. So I'd say if they do get fired at the end of the uh, at the end of their relationship, there are still owed severance, regardless of what you call them.
1: Claire, appreciate that. Uh, quick and dirty answer, but uh, if you want to reach out further, you can always uh, call Stan. Jason, you're the guy you're up next. Says, hey, Stan, Is the general rule of thumb. Here we go. Two weeks of severance for every year I work there. Aha, uh-huh. Jason hasn't been catching the show for the last 10 years, but that's okay. Give him an answer. What do you say, Stan?
2: Yeah. No, I mean there really isn't a general rule of thumb. I know everyone would like a short, uh, a short, quick way to try to figure out your own. And, and as you know, we we have that app available uh, at the Pocket Employment Lawyer. But j- if you if you are looking for like a just a basic understanding, I would say that it's about a month per year, not two weeks per year. That's usually someone's minimum entitlements, uh, and kind of goes up or down from there depending on. Service, years of service age mm-hmm. and how senior that person is within the organization
1: albert's up next says can an employer terminate you while you're on disability leave well i mean they can but that's a that's a big bowl of wrong what do you say about that Stan?
3: yeah i mean
2: in theory they could john i mean if you're <laughs> yeah. sort of like a you know a hundred person restructuring and you just happen to be caught up in that restructuring i mean your position is being eliminated then in reality, that's not discrimination, and there's really not much you can do other than get your severance at that point. But if there, it, you know, if it comes down to an option between the, the employee who's on disability and some other employee, well, in that instance, if your mind turns to well, we'll just get rid of the guy because that person's disabled and they're not here right now, that is absolutely discrimination, even if it's not the main reason you're terminating that employee. Even if it's just 1% of the reason, that constitutes discrimination and is a violation of that person's human rights.
1: And we hope that answers the question. By the way, as we uh, get to the end here in a few minutes, you can always reach out to Stan and do so. Don't hesitate, One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. 821 5900 Robert says, I was terminated after 12 years of service. Uh, it was a technical role. I'm in my 40s. I was offered 25 weeks severance. Stan, is that fair?
2: That sounds low uh, to me, absolutely. I would think that, again, You know, using the rule of thumb of about a month per year, that's where I would start, and then try to gather some information in context about the individual themselves and their particular position, job, etc., to determine whether that's fair, does it need to go down, or do they, in fact, get even more than a month per year?
1: Again, quick answers, but you can reach out for more information. Bob, Big Bob says, my employer gave me a month of working notice—one month, thirty days. I have an interview in Halliburton, and she denied my request for time off for that interview. Is that allowed? That's kind of a broader question, right? You've been given—you've uh, been given some notice, and in the meantime, you got to find a new gig if you can. What do you think about that, uh, Stan? Yeah, well,
2: a lot of people don't, you know, like it or understand it, but working notice is actually a perfectly legal way to satisfy somebody's entitlements. Um, you know, most companies don't do it. Most companies don't want an unmotivated employee sticking around, being able to cause God knows what kind of mayhem. Uh, but in the instances in which a company is okay with it, unfortunately, there's nothing the employee can do. But at the same time, if you're going to give somebody working notice, you have to understand the purpose of it. And the purpose is to ultimately give them the opportunity to understand, while they're still collecting a paycheck, mind you, that their job's ending and they got to find another one. So if, if they do have a potential interview coming up, then the employer actually has to allow that person to go and conduct that interview. Otherwise, it undermines the essential purpose of the working notice itself.
1: Let me get to James. This is a question still being asked uh, even now. Stan says, I've been off work uh, for a week with a cold. I told my employer yesterday that I feel good enough to return to work next week. And they told me that I would have to go for a COVID test showing I was negative or they could not let me come back to work. Do I have to go for that COVID test?
2: Yeah. You know, if you asked me a year ago, I would say, absolutely. Uh, but again, things are evolving and it's much more and more difficult to kind of understand the rationale for these things. And ultimately, I mean, I would say, you should probably go for the COVID test. You know, it's not particularly in, invasive procedure. You know, they're they're readily available at Shoppers Drug Mart nowadays or any pharmacy. Uh, and just to pr- safeguard the workplace, I can kind of understand the rationale. Um, whether it's absolutely required and whether it's something they can do as a condition of coming back,
3: you know, I think,
2: again, it depends very much on context uh, because, as we know, I mean, there's any number of other other uh, measures that employers have put in place that safeguard the the workplace, like masking or uh, or social distancing or things like that. So whether it's even necessary again comes down to context of the actual workplace.
1: Let me get to Alexis here. We got about a minute and a half. It's not a long one, but it's an interesting. One. We love that Ontario government website it says the government website says I have to wait five years before I'm eligible for severance. Is that true?
2: Well, uh, I'm not sure which government website that would be. <laughs> not true. Um, all right. know. I guess in the context, but see, this is where you have to distinguish between severance as a general idea and severance as a specific concept under the Act. Because under the Employment Standards Act, it is true that you can only be eligible for severance pay after five years of employment and assuming the company has a payroll of over 2.5 million. But when we talk about severance on this show or just generally, we're just talking about money that people are owed upon termination. And, you know, sometimes that encompasses what they're owed under the statute, including severance pay. But oftentimes it doesn't. You know, and and if you were a three year employee, you're still entitled to some form of severance, just not the specific severance that's talked about under the Employment Standards Act.
1: And with that, we are done, son. You want to reach out to Stan Feinsenberg now? Do so. Don't hesitate. Uh, the number to call anytime, time, 855 Email is help at employmentlawyer.ca. And that website, again, free anonymous access to the Severance Calculator. Good tool. Two million plus have used it. That would be pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Enjoy your rest of your day. We'll catch you next time in the Employment Law Show.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.